Psalm 16 is where we're going to be at this morning, looking at these 11 verses in Psalm 16. Now, it's been a while since we've been in this series, so I'm going to bring you back up to speed real quickly as to like what's happening here. Um, instead of paraphrasing it for 10 minutes, which is probably what I would likely do, I'm just going to read you the last passage that we looked at in 1 Samuel chapter 23 to kind of give us a little bit of context as we come into the text this morning. And so we'll read this, 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse, uh, let's say 19. We read this, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more... Uh, Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and see, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me uh, with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So Saul, remember, he still hates David. He's still trying to chase David down. He's still trying to find him. And so he, David has been hiding in this city called Ziph. Now, the people of Ziph realize that David's there, and they go and they tell Saul, like, hey, David is here. We're letting you know that he's here. Now, why would they do that? Well, the last city that David hid in, and they didn't tell the king, Saul went through, it was a city of priests, this city called Nob, and Saul went through and he just destroyed it all and just laid waste to his own city, which is, if you're the king, you don't attack your own cities. So this shows his unfitness to be king, right? And so this, is, this city was a little bit sensitive to what has happened recently, and so they're saying, yo, like, don't destroy us. We want, we're just going to tell you he's here. So, like, we don't want any part of your fight, your quarrel with him. He's here. They want favor from Saul. And so they just tell him, like, we're going to let him know. And Saul's like, hey, tell me when he's around. Make sure that he's there and I'll come. And so David has been on the run from Saul for quite some time. Now we read, we continue in uh, verse 24. Now they, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, uh, David was told so. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So there, there, Saul, David's like, I know Saul's after me. I got to get out of here. So he goes and lives by this big rock. Uh, it's kind of like a, like a tiny, like little mountain. And so they are. Uh, on one side and Saul's on the other. They're pursuing each other. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and, uh, and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went after the Philistines. Therefore, the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So we kind of have this uh, little scene, this little narrative where Saul is trying to kill David. They're at this rock together and David and his men are on one side and Saul and his men are on one side. And they're chasing each other around the 
you know, Saul's chasing David around this mountain, this rock here, and they get to the point where like, they see him. It, David is within sight. Saul is, is making quick progress. He's, he's almost there. But yet, as he is about to capture David, this man that he's been after for a, a good number of years, he's been chasing him down, trying to find him, and David has always escaped. He's always escaped. He's almost about to get him, and now a messenger comes. Someone comes to bring word. Hey, Saul, you got to get back because your, your home is getting attacked. The Philistines are coming to get you. And so David uh, finds a way of escape, not by his own hand, but by the messenger, by the Lord delivering David through diverting Saul's attention and bringing this urgency to Saul's heart. And so he goes, and David finds a place or a way of escape, and he calls this place a rock of escape. And so he goes up from there and lives in the strongholds of Engedi. So David here, this is the last thing that we looked at. David, again, trying to run for his life. And now as we come to our text this morning in Psalm 16, seeing a little bit of the background of this era of David's life, understanding how he responds to these situations of feeling threatened, feeling that he is uh, you know, under attack, we read uh, in Psalm 16 a, a little bit of the story, the understanding of what is going on. And I think it's helpful for us because we are going to go through these trials, these moments of suffering, difficulties, and we have to know how we ought to live as Christians and interact with these moments and seasons of suffering. And so we read in Psalm 16, uh, the title of this psalm uh, you will not abandon my soul. Again, a mictum of David. Uh, likely there a, uh, like a description of a sort of like a musical note, what type of psalm this is that uh, would have been helpful for the readers. We don't exactly know that translation and what the mictum uh, translates to perfectly. But David comes in and he gets right to business. And I appreciate this. I appreciate this. He gets right to business, and he structures his psalm, 11 verses, in basically three ways. He begins with this plea in verse 1. As you move through the psalm, you see that he has a true and healthy perspective, and then he ends towards the, the, the latter portion of the psalm by having this understanding of that he has possessed what God has intended to give him. He's possessed what he's requested through his plea. And so we'll look at these in kind of three sections. First, this plea, verse 1, he says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's asking the Lord to preserve him. Right? This is a brilliant request. This is the request of somebody who knows God. This is a request that you should learn. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, when he says that there, preserve, he means guard me or keep watch over me. This is what the word translates to. But I want you to notice one thing here. What David does in the, in the beginning of this psalm, in dealing with these hardships in his life and suffering and difficulties, he asks for the Lord to sustain him. He says, preserve me. Preserve me. Now, what, what, what's the difference here? What's the nuance that I'm getting at? Well, what David is asking for here is not to be protected from, uh, from harm. He's saying, protect me from death. David's just saying, I need you to let me go on. He knows that he can't be insulated from all of the things in the entire world. 
I remember, you know, being young and, and praying with my dad and, and, and right before I go to bed and, and I would always have, you know, the typical kind of little kid prayer, like, Lord, help, help no bad things to ever happen and nothing ever bad to happen to me. It's like, how effective was that prayer? Probably not like the most effective because like lots of bad things have happened, right? And I think we all have experienced that. Nobody wants bad things to happen to us. Nobody wants to experience those hardships or trials or difficulty, but they happen. They happen so much so that uh, we have to then learn how to interact with them. And as you look at the scriptures, we're told that these trials often come into our lives to bring about patience, that they might bring about the perfecting of our character, that we should count it all joy, we're told, when we fall into various trials, when we experience hardship. We should count it all joy, that we should be joyful about that. It's not something that you typically connect to seasons of trial, but rather our prayers are mostly keep us from trial, period. It's just not the reality of our lives, and we find that God uses these trials to refine us, to sanctify us. And so David has learned this secret. He doesn't say, don't let anything bad happen to me. He says, keep me in the season of those hardships. Keep me in the season of suffering. Keep me as I move through life. Make sure that I'm able to survive. You know, David uses what he has here at this phase in life, and you'll see that this matures. It blossoms into something greater as life goes on. Later, he gets into a season where his own son, Absalom, is trying to overthrow him. He's trying to destroy him, absolutely crush him. He wants to uh, become the king. And similar here to what what David is experiencing with Saul trying to get him, David has this opportunity to see how he's going to respond to his own son trying to take his, his role. His own son trying to destroy him. And, and you, we find David's perspective as his own son is raising up armies and trying to kill him. David's perspective stays the same that we find here in Psalm 16. You read of his perspective in Psalm chapter 3 where he says, You, O Lord, are my strength and my shield. He says, You are the lifter of my head. When he speaks of that in, in Psalm 3, when he talks about the Lord being a shield there, it's something that we often miss. But what David is remarking on there when he says that the Lord is his shield, he's not just saying that the Lord is protecting him from the attacks that come against him. But rather, he's saying that as he hides behind the Lord, who is his shield, as he finds his safety and security behind the Lord, who is his shield, that they are going to move forward in victory. He's going to move forward in trusting the Lord in victory. Because the type of shield that David speaks of there in Psalm 3 isn't the little, you know, the little like hand-to-hand -hand combat shield. It's not the, the, the classic one that you see, you know, and, you know, with like the knights and they have the little circle on their arm and they're like, yeah, we got this. And I got the sword in one hand and we've got the, the shield on the other and we're moving through the heat of the battle and we've we're got enemies on my left and right. No, the shield that David is speaking of in Psalm chapter 3 is something that's more of the size of a door, right? It's like this massive door that they would build these huge uh, uh, 
like the Roman soldiers would build these, these huge shields in such a way that they would use them to storm fortresses, that you couldn't move backwards with the shield. You could only move forwards. And so you would have this massive shield that would cover the soldier, and you would hide behind it, and then oftentimes they would put another shield on top, covering it, and so they could move forward as like this protected, armored uh, unit in, deeper into the heat of the battle. What David is saying there in Psalm 3 is the same thing that he's saying here. Like, we're going into the hotter parts of the battle. It's going to get more difficult. And what he, he's getting at here is that, Lord, I know it's going to get worse. But you alone can sustain me. You alone can care for me. I can't stop all the bad things from happening. You're the only one that can protect me. And so he makes this plea. Protect me from death. Not just from harm, but sustain me. He continues in verse 2 to build upon his plea. And this is why he makes this plea. His perspective begins to uh, be developed here in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In Psalm 73, we find a similar statement Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is the perspective of the psalmist, the perspective of David. What he's saying here is I've got nothing else that I'm hoping in. I've got nothing else that I'm protecting. I've got no other backup plans. I only have you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You know, last week as we were ending worship, we kind of spent that little bit of time last week marinating together and, 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 and praying out that little phrase of the song, Jesus, you're all this heart is living for. Right? Remember that? We sat here and we kind of just were dwelling on that a little bit together, praying that that would be true of us. This is a continuing statement, a continuing attitude that we should adopt. Because I wonder how many of us could say, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. David's not saying that in a way that, that's hyperbole. He's saying that in the most literal sense. Now, the problem with us is this. One, that might not be true of us, right? You are my God, I have no good apart from you. That might be true. But it also might be true that we aren't willing to seek the Lord as that good. We might be people who are not just not having that there, but we're also like, well, I want good in these other things. What David is saying is not just that there's other, uh, that, that he doesn't have other things. He's also saying that there is nothing good out there. He's disqualifying the fact that you could go and search for anything else. And so his confession here is one that excludes the search for anything else in life, for anything else that would fulfill, for anything else that would preserve or protect. He doesn't leave it open for us to say, you know, I have no good apart from you. He's not saying, well, go, go and find some good. Go find some other things. Go, maybe there's some other things in life that will satisfy. He is putting it out there plain and simple for all of us to understand that if you are pursuing something else and you think it's going to be good for you, in the sense that it will save you, it will preserve you, it will, your identity in it will bring you safety and security, you are mistaken. 
Any good that you are experiencing in life is the result of God's work in your life. It's his common grace to give good to you because he's the only good. God is good and all good comes from God. And so we can't even begin to develop goodness apart from him. We can't begin to understand how there could be good apart from him. Even the goodness that exists in the world that happens with, uh, outside of those who are Christians, even those other things, those things are good because of God's uh, character, his nature, what he has allowed and equipped people with. Nobody can say that their skills or talents or abilities are their own. Even though they might not confess that they are given to them by God or that he helps them, it doesn't make it less true. They still are all through God. It's all his work, all of his abilities. All good comes from God. And so he says here, he makes this confession, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's saying the same thing two different ways. To say that Jesus is your Lord is to say that there's nothing else that you're pursuing, that he rules and reigns over every area, every aspect of your life, that your identity is rooted in him. And so if you're going to say that Jesus is Lord, there's no way that you could make a statement that says, I found good apart from him. If you're going to say, I have found good, the only way you can make that statement is if you found Jesus, that your identity is rooted firmly in him. And so no matter where you're at on your journey this morning, you need to understand that your pursuit should be entirely in identity in Christ because in him is life and peace and in him is good. He'll continue to uh, flesh us out as we move further into the passage, but consider that as we move through. I don't think it can be said of all of us. I don't think it can be said of most of us and maybe not of any of us that as we were making that confession last week, Jesus, you're all this heart is living for. We make a confession this week. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Lord, search my heart, right? That's not what David says in the other Psalms. Search my heart and see if there is any, anything in me. Go root around, look around and find those things that don't belong, that are not of you. And we're going to root those out. We want you to work to pull those out. David's perspective is that he wants to know, understand, and enjoy Jesus deeply. We continue in verse 3, and he says he wants to be with other people who do this as well. This is his perspective. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So he says both. There's people who are saints in the land. These are people who are God's people. But then he also says they are the excellent ones, or this might be translated to mighty or magnificent but this name here, excellent or mighty or magnificent, it's often used to describe God. So this characteristic of them being excellent or mighty or magnificent is most frequently used to, character, be, uh, to characterize God. But here it's also used to describe his people. So what, what David's saying here is like, these are people who belong to God. And they are like God in character, in nature, in being. And so he is drawn to those people who want to also pursue the Lord, who want to be with him. He's drawn to people who are holy. He's not drawn to the same people who Saul is drawn to, who he was always drawn to, whoever seemed to be strong or mighty. David is not swayed by that because David is learning to look at the heart as God looks at the heart. 
By contrast, David rolls out in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. His confession here is that there are those who want to find their identity in God and be rooted in him. They want to be a people who are like him in character and nature, who are delighting in him. But then there are those, by contrast, who are seeking to find good apart from him. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So his confession here is that there are those who pursue and run after another God. The, the actual word that he uses here is an interesting one because it, it, in the other places in the scriptures, in the Old Testament particularly, we find that this same word is used to describe someone who is looking to acquire uh, a wife. Somebody who goes off on a journey and says, I'm going off to find a wife. I'm going to look for somebody to wed myself to. I'm looking for someone to whom I should give my heart and all of my resources, my finances. I'm going to make a connection at this deep level. And what David is saying here is that those who aren't pursuing the Lord in this way, they are running after other gods. They are looking to acquire a wife or to wed themselves to this pagan god, a false god, something that would disappoint. And so they're pursuing these false gods in the sense of acquiring a deeper relationship that they would give all of their heart, their being, their energy to. But he says that the result of this is that their sorrows will multiply. Their sorrows will multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Now, this is a genius, genius phrase here. It's a masterstroke because what is David doing here? He is calling us, he's left these little breadcrumbs for us, he's calling us to go all the way back to the garden where God was initially in relationship with Adam and Eve and he was having this relationship with them in the garden, walking with them, enjoying time with them. He said, all I want you to do is to enjoy yourselves, to walk with me. You have one, you know, basically one rule, like don't eat of the tree of knowledge or good of evil, right? Like stay away from that tree of life. Like all the other trees, you're good. Go ahead. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. Pretty simple. But yet, as they enter into this dialogue, as Eve enters into this dialogue with uh, this serpent, Satan, we find that the doubt creeps in. The beginning of a lie comes in that God doesn't really love you. Why would he keep you from these things? Why would he not give you everything? Why would he put boundaries? Why would he make it difficult for you? When in reality, there was very little boundaries. There was very little that they... they you know, uh, weren't able to participate in. They had the fullness of the garden. And David, he remembers, he, it seems like he calls back to that moment as he remembers as they broke that relationship with God. They were in that relationship there and as they took of the fruit, as they disobeyed God, they were seeking after to acquire knowledge for themselves, Right? You want to be like God. I want to know and be like him. I want to have my own way to take his authority, to exalt myself to another level. And so uh, they partake of uh, this fruit in disobedience. They go after their own way. 
But the result of that, of their pursuit of another God, we're told, from the Lord to Eve in Genesis 3.16 is this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain. Right? Multiply your pain. So when David comes here with a similar sentiment, looking at those who pursue other gods, he says, you guys, remember back to the garden. Those, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Like there's this multiplication of pain and sorrow and, and heartache and difficulty. We have seen what this has led to. He's calling us back to, to say, remember, you don't want to go there. Look at where it's led us. He says, choose the Lord. And this is what he says that he has chosen in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. He says, everything that I have is from the Lord. The Lord is sufficient to meet my need and any need that his people may have. Another psalmist, Asaph, he says uh, similarly in uh, verse 26 of Psalm 73, he says, my, heart, or my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We find a similar sentiment in Lamentations 3, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, David's circling back now to his statement in verse 2. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Now he's describing what, who the Lord is to him. My treasure, my portion, what you have given to me. You hold my lot. What you have provided for me is sufficient to meet every need. It will, not just sufficient in the sense that it's enough, but it is more than satisfying. There's nothing more that he could want. And as he reflects back, we read his thoughts in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. Right? He's like, likely looking back to that time where they divided up the land. They looked at the division of the land and said, okay, well, here's how we're dividing the land. Here's what this family gets and here's what this family gets. And so he says, the lines, how, how, as they've divided these things, they've fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, this goes over our mind really quick. Like This goes through like... Our, our mind really quick because like we don't live this way we don't think this way if you look back at David's life his inheritance is absolutely zero he has absolutely nothing because he's not the firstborn in fact he's the youngest the firstborn of every household is the one who got everything it wasn't like well we're going to divide it up between all the kids and you get like 25 percent you get 25 percent nothing David automatically gets nothing so he's coming in and saying my nothing that I got in the division of the lines, it's great. It's a beautiful inheritance. I have not received that. Or he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. As the Lord is dividing things up for him again, what he should receive, he says, I've received plenty from the Lord. So as he remarks in verse 6, he's not talking about the division of land that he's going to receive naturally through his family. He's saying, as the Lord has given to him, as the Lord has provided for him, as the Lord has given him something he has provided for him. He receives an inheritance that he would not receive normally through his natural family. The Lord has seen that he has been taken care of. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel 
and the night. Also, my heart instructs me. He's looking now to the Lord, not just as his treasure, but as his counselor, the one who is giving him wisdom. Isn't, how, isn't that how uh, we find the description of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9? Wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty, mighty God, everlasting father. Again, here we find that God is in keeping with his character to give David this wisdom and counsel as he seeks him in these seasons. As the Lord is his portion, he finds that the Lord is providing for him everything that he needs, one of those things being wise counsel. And so for these seven verses, we find that David has been just ruminating. He's been reflecting on what God is for him. He's a refuge, a treasure. He's ruling over all things. He's this wonderful counselor. But now as we come to verse 8, we see how David has processed his petition, his plea in verse 1. He cries out in verse 1, preserve me, O God. But now we're able to see that in verse 8 that he has been able to find confidence in the Lord because he has been reminding himself of all the ways that the Lord does and has preserved him. Right? This is what we talk about all the time. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. You have to remind yourself of what Christ has done for you at the cross, paying for your sin. His blood shed for your sin, paying for it, washing us clean, and being raised in the resurrection for our justification. This work done on our behalf, as we remember that, it gives us a new identity and says we're no longer clean or dirty, but clean. We're no longer having to be held account for those sins and wrongdoings, those transgressions. We no longer have to uh, explain them or be, uh, receive punishment for them because he was punished for us. We can now instead confess that we have sinned, but that we have found salvation. We found identity in Christ, and his righteousness is now our righteousness. We're not defending ourselves, but we're saying, yes, it's true, I'm guilty. But Christ's blood covers me, and I have salvation. David has done this. He's practiced this. And so as we come to verse 8, he summarizes what he has been doing. Here's his prescription. I have set the Lord always before me. This is the perspective that he's had since the beginning. He's like, I've got this plea. I want you to do this, God. I want you to preserve me. Now here's how I've gone about it. I'm summarizing now. I have set the Lord before me. This is how I've done it. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. If we want to word that another way, David says, I shall not be shaken because I have set the Lord always before me. He says the way that you navigate life, the way that you navigate hardship and trials is to set the Lord before you. He has this true and healthy perspective. The reason for his firm footing is not because he figured it out, because he was able to stabilize himself, but because he remained focused on the Lord. He's not worried about his safety is not worried about security. He's not worried about being shaken in any way because he's always set the Lord before him. He's made it his priority, his mission. And so he realizes, I have truly been preserved 
and I will be preserved. And so he possesses that which he has pled with the Lord over in verse 1. He possesses what God has already promised to him. We read in verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad. I've set the Lord before me, and so my heart is glad. I'm not worried. I'm not in this position of hardship in my heart, and I don't have anxiety. I don't have fear. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So he says, my heart is glad. The entirety of my whole being rejoices. My emotional state, my physical state, I dwell secure. No matter what happens, no matter what comes against me, I know that I'm with God, that I'm with him. And then he transitions to kind of like this interesting, strange uh, little clump of verses that seem to ring true about his current situation to a degree, but also seem like they have greater implications. Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he begins saying, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So this is the word that's used in the Old Testament, Sheol, for the grave. It's kind of this thing that happens after uh, death. And often what you know, is described there um, kind of in, in this ancient time was this idea that the body and the, the spirit were separated. Uh, and so it was more this used in, here's what you need to know. It's an extremely inaccurate word. Like it's not, or not inaccurate, it's extremely imprecise. It's like a very junk drawer word. It's like, hey, like here's what happens after you die. But generally the thought uh, here's that there's this separation of the, the person from the body. And as you come to the New Testament, or well, well, in the Old Testament, this is kind of used of everybody. But as you come to the New Testament, this is really only used of uh, unbelievers. It's not used of Christians. In the New Testament, it's a different word. It's this word that's translated Hades. And it does have uh, some crossover and connotations uh, with the Greek uh, background of that. So here, David's saying, like, I'm going to be in a spot where you're not going to leave me alone, where I will be separated from you, that you're going to just let me be destroyed, that you're going to keep me intact. But at the same time, as we're reading this, we're thinking, well, you know, much like Peter and Paul were thinking in the book of Acts, like, like David's like dead, so like, this is like sort of like true, but like also sort of like not true. What's going on here? Well, it seems like Peter has kind of categorized this for us because as both he and Paul use this in the book of Acts, they use it as a stepping stone to explain that all of this comes to bear for Christians our ability to find identity in Christ, our ability to cry out to him to preserve us, our ability to possess these promises that he will indeed do this, but it comes about through this work. It comes about through this, what essentially is a prophecy of Christ's resurrection. This is how Peter characterizes it in Acts chapter 24. There's quite a bit of verses, so you probably want to turn there. Uh, Acts 24, or excuse me, Acts 2, verse 24. Peter says this uh, in this big sermon that he gives at the day of Pentecost. He says, God raised him up, him being Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
So he says, here's what happened to Jesus. Jesus has been raised up. He's in the middle of like his argument that Jesus is, is God and he's paid for our sins. This is what he's getting at in Acts chapter 2. Then in verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So he starts quoting straight from Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter says, he just quotes like basically, you know, like these last three or four verses of Psalm 16. He says, this is why David said this. He continues in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Yep, that's what we were saying. Like pretty much like this is sort of true of David, but also like what's really happening here. He's saying, Peter's saying like, we can't truly and leave it with David because like you guys know where David's tomb is. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet... He says, because David knew the Lord and the Lord was always before him and that David was a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he believing in the messianic uh, or, or, the, or the Davidic line, this promise of uh, the continuing of David's kingdom, he foresaw, verse 31, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that has poured out uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I love that Peter does this because, like, holy smokes, trying to, like, make this bridge and connection to be like, yeah, he was talking about Jesus. Like, this is really hard work to do. But Peter's just like, here's what's really happening here. He explains it great for me because it would be, like, really tough to make that case. And we're like, well, what about, he just says it straight up. Okay? So you can take his word for it. I'm taking his word for it. Here's, here's what you need to know. His point here is that, that as David is writing this, because he's a prophet, He's actually writing specifically, thinking of, like, this is true of me, but it's more true of Jesus. It's more true that this will come to pass. And by this coming to pass for Jesus, the implications are that it will then come to pass for you and I. Peter speaks about it in such a way uh, to say that David is speaking of Christ. He's not speaking about himself because we see his tomb. He's speaking about his resurrection, and God does indeed raise Christ up. He does resurrect him, and this is related to what they're talking about here on the day of Pentecost. And so what he's saying here is then we can have certainty in the afterlife. Hades there, or this kind of point of the body being separated from the soul, this section that would happen after death, that in the Old Testament was kind of like spoken about with both people. In the New Testament, it's very explicit that Jesus goes, he defeats it, and for those who trust in Christ for salvation, those things are never separated. That They belong to him. 
that he has the keys to sin and death, that he has destroyed death, our last enemy. I love this. He has conquered death. Like, how radical is that? One theologian kind of speaks about it this way, that as you go, as, as Christians, as we go through the age, and as some of us, I mean, so far to this point, we're, we're all, everybody's died. We're making our way through life, and people will continue to die unless, you know, the Lord just remakes the heavens and the earth and everything is squared and amazing. But people will do that. But what we find is that, that uh, Jesus has conquered sin and death. And so death is the common enemy that we all face. And as we're making our way into death, because Jesus has then conquered death, as you go to meet death, if you're a Christian, you just find Jesus. And so you go to be absorbed into death, but you're, you, you're not going to be absorbed into death because there's no death to absorb you. Jesus has already conquered it. And so instead you meet Jesus. You don't meet death. You meet Jesus and you have life and we are, have hope for life after death because life after death is found in Jesus. It's him. It belongs to him. Paul puts it this way uh, in Romans chapter 8, telling us that we have this identical hope. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You will have life, and life is found in him. And so when David says, all the way back in the beginning, preserve me, Oh God, for in you I take refuge. In the truest sense, he's saying that even if I go into death, I go into you. I can find ultimate security in you. This is why he can say with confidence in verse 2, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. There's nothing else to go to, there's nothing else to find. So why would I pursue anything else? And so it's our responsibility as Christians to have this perspective that's proper, to set the Lord always before us so that we are not shaken. Almost every single verse in this psalm, I want you to catch this, speaks with a single-minded focus about giving everything in every aspect, every area of your life to the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to cast all my lot in with, with Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. In terms of security, in terms of your physical and emotional welfare, in terms of the people that you spend your time with, right? It says there, the, his, his saints, his excellent ones, that David's like, you got to spend time with those people because they help you see Jesus clearly. Our worship, the things that we want to pursue in life, all of these things are connected to that single-mindedness of pursuing the Lord. And so as we move forward, you have to ask yourself, is the Lord your chosen portion? He wants you to have the fullness of himself, but we need to be aware that there's nothing else to look for. And so don't make it your goal, your aim. Don't develop ambition for these other things that you think will fulfill you. Your ambition should be for the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion. I'm pursuing him. 
and my cup. You hold my lot. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's, that's where it ends. Like, we keep coming back to that verse. It seems like for like the last like five or six weeks, like we're, we're kind of like circling, circling that verse still. I don't know how it keeps coming back, but the Lord must want us to know that there's, no, there's nothing else out there. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we want to make it our goal or our aim to be there. And so let's respond. Let's pursue him together this morning. Let's keep that perspective that we finished last week with, that prayer, Jesus, you're all this heart is longing for. Our perspective from this week, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Remember that we're looking to pursue Jesus and to enjoy him. And enjoy him together. Let's pray and we'll respond together. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness and love towards us. We're thankful that you've given us the fullness of yourself, withholding nothing. Withholding absolutely nothing. Because you are good. Everything about you is good and you want to give us only the best. Only your best. And so we want to receive that with thanksgiving. We want to rejoice in what you have provided for us and we want to find our satisfaction and so uh, in you and so lord if we're we're out there pursuing other things if we're finding our identity in other things we want to see those things uh, as um, subservient to who you are and to your work and your will and your way So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, now we ask that you just be working among us in our midst, drawing us to you. I know that we need to be convicted in our spirit. That we might be people who are not pursuing you wholeheartedly. But we want it to begin today. The wholehearted pursuit. We want to give you the fullness of our hearts this morning, not leaving anything out of, out of reach, but asking you to touch us and transform us and change us in every way. And we want to respond to Thanksgiving now and so inhabit the praises of your people. We love you. Amen.